You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States Police Force has everything under control. everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to be talking about George Lucas. We are going to start off the show with looking back at the career of George Lucas, uh, not specifically focusing on Star Wars like we normally do, but we will later. But in all of his other previous work before Star Wars and the work that he did after Star Wars or in between Star Wars films, he's done a lot of producing, a lot of writing, a lot of behind the scenes stuff that most people are probably not even aware of or have forgotten by now. So we're going to kind of take a look at some of his ventures in the realm of filmmaking. Then we're going to visit our posters of the month with this month's two entries of the teaser poster for Star Wars The Last Jedi and the original Escape from New York. Two different kind of posters, completely different eras, pretty much uh, different genres. One of them very current that uh, we're about to hopefully see the movie in, a, in just a few weeks. I actually already have the tickets. And the other one, a classic, an absolute John Carpenter classic that the poster is just as great as the movie. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the actual poster. And then we're going to wrap up with a first-hand review of Star Tours, the new Last Jedi edition that they've made to Star Tours that we've been talking about in the past that it's coming. Well, I finally got a chance to see it, and I'm going to give you a shot-by-shot description of how the ride has changed, and we'll go over again what it might be looking like in the future when hopefully you guys get a chance to see it. So let's begin with George Lucas. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That 
spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. Today I want to take the time and attempt to profile a little bit of George Lucas's work. Obviously, most of us are very familiar with his Star Wars and Indiana Jones work. In Star Wars' case, obviously, as director, writer, and executive producer. And on Indiana Jones' case, mainly as a co-writer and an executive producer. With Steven Spielberg, of course. But he does have a body of work that started a little before Star Wars and even after Star Wars. So I want to kind of go through some of these that, you know, some people might not be very familiar with. His first slightly big film, I guess you could call it, is THX 1138, which was a sci-fi, futuristic, artistic kind of film that he made, which was a remake of a student film that he had made. And that became his first film that he made with Zotrop Studios, which is the Francis Ford Coppola company with Lucas and a whole bunch of other people that they put together. And that was the first attempt, at least from the Lucas front, to put out a motion picture, an actual major motion picture. The film is, like I said, it's, it's kind of artsy. So it's not, it is not Star Wars. <laughs> it's hard to compare the two when you see it. What's interesting about THX is that it's been remastered and new scenes have been added. Special effects have been corrected, if you will, similar to what they did with the special edition. So it is interesting to see how he took the time to go back and, and kind of fix that film a little bit to tweak it, you know. Uh, like he did with Star Wars. His big break really was American Graffiti, which was a comedy drama, 1960s kids cruising kind of film, a fun film, but it is a film of the time. It is a film that deals with the concerns of the kids of that era. Amongst the cast, you had Ron Howard, who would later on <laughs> cross paths with Lucas many times, Richard Dreyfus. Spielberg uh, alumni, and a very short role uh, for Harrison Ford, who, yes, would be a big deal come later in the history of George Lucas. With Star Wars, that's when he went from a guy with a hit with a guy with a monster franchise hit. There's really not much I could tell you about Star Wars other than the fact that it changed film. It changed entertainment. It changed the definition of a blockbuster. It changed the definition of a franchise marketing, advertising, you know, you name it, it completely blew everything out and transformed modern filmmaking. A few years later, they actually made a sequel to American Graffiti called More American Graffiti. He, at this point, did not direct it. He just executive produced it. He wasn't, I don't think he was that interested in it. At the time, he was more focused on what was coming next, which was Empire Strikes Back. This one he did not direct, but he did write and produce. That was quickly followed by Raiders of the Lost Ark with Spielberg, which began their collaborations uh, together with the Indiana Jones line of films. Once again, he was a writer and producer. Along the way, I believe through Empire Strikes Back, he hooked up with Lawrence Kasdan to help, you know, flesh out the script. And he also was able to executive produce Lawrence Kasdan's directorial uh, film, Body Heat. So he does have a credit for Body Heat. Pretty soon, you have Return of the Jedi once again, writer, executive producer. And then after Jedi, things kind of started to slow down in terms of that was the end of the Star Wars run, at least for the time being. So he started to concentrate on other things, on other projects. Now, he still had Indiana Jones, you know, in the back burner, but he was the executive producer of Twice Upon a Time, which was uh, kind of like a artistic fairy tale type of movie. I don't think it was that successful, but it's one of these little weird films because he, he always talks about wanting to go back to experimental films and artistic films and that sort of thing. Anytime he retires or he claims to be in retirement, that's what he does. <laughs> it's weird. He doesn't necessarily direct these films, but he is involved in the production of it, most likely as an executive producer and that sort of thing. Up next, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, continuing the Indiana Jones franchise as writer, producer, and he does have a small little cameo that's uncredited. He played a missionary, one of those background actors. Now, when you hit the mid-80s, you also start to hit this period where, because there's no Star Wars and Lucasfilm 
is still involved in filmmaking primarily. You know, ILM is doing a ton of work, but he is also producing a lot. It's not necessarily writing, but he is producing. So you have, first up, you have Labyrinth, the Jim Henson film with David Bowie, fantasy, really weird film. Then you have the infamous, I, don't, I didn't want to say famous, but infamous Howard the Duck, the attempt to bring a <laughs> comic book character into the, the film world. And it's funny because you could say that, you know, the things that are popular now, Lucas tried, but failed miserably at some points. He wrote and produced it. It was a massive, massive flop. 1988, he also wrote and produced Willow, which was a fantasy, uh, middle-agey type of film directed by Ron Howard, who again, later would uh, end up, you know, they're meeting again now as director. And later, unbeknownst to anybody, Ron Howard would be directing the Han Solo standalone Star Wars film that is happening right now. Uh, so it's really unusual how everybody kind of comes back to Star Wars in one way or the other. Uh, Willow was not that successful. <laughs> it wasn't a complete bomb, but it just wasn't that successful. And just like you could say that with Howard the Duck, for example, you know, George Lucas was trying to open up the, the comic book franchise uh, possibilities. Here, it's kind of a Lord of the Ring-ish kind of film, if you will. But again, it did not succeed. <laughs> so it's interesting, you know, when you attempt these things and they don't, they just don't succeed as, as you envisioned they would. And later on, when Lord of the Rings was put out, obviously, yeah, that's that's what exploded that whole genre. Then you had Tucker, the Man in His Dream, a dramatic piece about the car designer with Francis Ford Coppola. He produced it. The Land Before Time, again, produced it, tapping into animated films, you know, that sort of thing. Mild hit. 1989, you have Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, what was believed to be the last Indiana Jones film. Comes back to collaborate with Steven Spielberg. He is acting as writer and producer once again. Now, you got to keep in mind, there might be little things here or there that I'm not going to go into because they're just so minuscule that they're not really that important. But in the early 90s, you have Radioland Murders. This was supposed to be another one of these, you know, more than average, heavily involved project for George Lucas. He wrote and produced it. Again, another somewhat of a bomb didn't work out too well as the 90s ended and we just passed all of the um, special edition films that he put out of the original star wars trilogy all of a sudden we have the prequel trilogy we have episode one phantom menace episode two attack of the clones and episode three revenge of the sith he does these films pretty much back to back as director writer and producer all of them he even had a little cameo in the third film. He played Baron Papadonia, which his character actually showed up again later in uh, one of the animated series. After that series has ended, 2008, we have Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, once again teaming up with Spielberg. He is the writer and producer. Now, even though you have another trilogy that has just completed, he does continue the Star Wars franchise, if you will, in animated form. The Clone Wars begins, the animated show that started out as an animated movie. He's the executive producer. He also produced Red Tails, which was a World War II African-American squad of uh, fighter pilots. Produced it. I don't think it got anywhere. The movie flopped pretty much. And in 2015, Strange Magic, another animated attempt, a completely different story. He wrote it and produced it. Didn't get anywhere. Didn't get much air. Now, however... On television, it's a different story because on television, in between all these films, he is doing a lot of work there too. And the work goes back all the way to the infamous Star Wars Holiday Special, the television event that Lucas wishes could be buried and forgotten, but thanks to us fans, it cannot. This is the holiday special aired in November of 78 which to this day, people cannot understand what is happening. His particular credit, uh, you know, he didn't shoot it, he didn't direct it, he didn't produce it, he didn't do anything, but technically, he kind of wrote the story. So the story you're seeing had to be approved by him. You know, the parameters of the story, you know, obviously they have writers that could kind of shape it, but the story itself that's being told was his story. On television, also in the mid-80s, you had The Caravan of Courage, an Ewok adventure, and Ewok The Battle for Endor, two television movies based on the Return of the Jedi Endor Ewok characters. He executive produced and wrote both those stories. 
there was a pair of animated shows around that time, Star Wars Ewoks and Star Wars Droids. He was the executive producer of those shows because obviously it's his franchise that they're using. The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, he was the executive producer and writer. That's also where he hooked up with uh, Rick McCallum, who would later become his main producer for the prequel trilogies. Star Wars Clone Wars, uh, that he also acted as uh, executive producer. Now, keep in mind, Star Wars Clone Wars was the micro-series. This was the short, very short series uh, that took place around the time of uh, Revenge of the Sith. He did a couple of... Uh, bit parts, usually playing himself on television. Some of the most memorable ones are Robot Chicken uh, Star Wars uh, special. He played himself. Now, Star Wars The Clone Wars, that was the bigger, bigger one where he executive produced, once again, and wrote a lot of that material. That's when he hooked up with Dave Filoni, and those two started working together and kind of continuing the background of all the stories that having to do with the Clone Wars. As the Clone Wars ended, that gave rise to Rebels, which is still on right now. Keep in mind, Rebels is not, he is not involved in Rebels directly, but they are all based on his characters. And Dave Filoni is one of the executive producers, so, you know, he's kind of doing it as best as he can with, you know, Lucas's uh, ex-tutelage, if you will. And there was a show that never aired called Star Wars Detours by the makers of Robot Chicken. This was a uh, an animated, funny kind of show that was supposed to premiere right before the time Disney bought Lucasfilm. The show was immediately shelved. Apparently, they have quite a number of episodes already made, but uh, they, they will not release them because they don't want them out, uh, at least at this point. So we'll see if that show ever sees the light of day. It is believed that at this point... George Lucas has officially retired this time for real, you know, every, again, after every, after every major trilogy, <laughs> he retires, but the guy is older now. He really, you know, he can't really do that much. Uh, he doesn't want to do that much. He has, you know, he's financially secure, I'm sure, millions, bazillions of dollars. And if you look at his body of work, especially as director, it is very short. It is, you know, you have Star Wars and you have Two other films pretty much before Star Wars that he directed that were somewhat successful, especially American Graffiti. American Graffiti, you know, he could have, even without Star Wars, he could have been a pretty successful director after American Graffiti if he chose to go in a different direction, obviously, you know, not the sci-fi fantasy route. It's really interesting, uh, you know, when you examine his work and primarily, you know, with as far as I'm concerned, it's mainly Star Wars. If you want a real behind the scenes making of, and I'm talking about the writing part, not so much the technical aspect, because the technical aspects are a whole other monster. This is a director that chose to try to do as much as possible. For example, with typical directors, you could say, okay, that person's here to direct. Sometimes he's he's a hired gun. Sometimes they're doing their own material. Fine, great, wonderful. He works within the means of his, you know, that he's given. And Lucas did that, you know, on his first couple of films, you know, that's what he did. He worked within his means. But by the time he got to Star Wars, he was already uh, functioning in a different manner. And that is, you got to remember, these are kids, kids. <laughs> these were kids of the 60s. They were growing up in a anti-establishment type of environment the Southern California or even Northern California film movement. Uh, you have your, uh, your, your Coppola's, your De Palma's, your Scorsese's. You have your Spielberg's, your Milius. You have all these kind of, uh, uh, rebellious youths. It was the easy writer generation. It was the somewhat, you know, post hippie, not that post, uh, you know, it was all during that. 60s type of stuff where it was a very anti-establishment kind of mood and it was a well you know if we can't do the things that we want to do we're going to do it ourselves you know if they won't give us this we're going to do it you know we're going to get it ourselves the old studio system was still kind of in place but it was starting to collapse 
you know, just like government. In other words, uh, the studio system almost represented government in itself, how the old government way of doing things wasn't working out. That Nixon era, that whole thing was similar to how the studios were, you know, being looked at. And for a lot of these young filmmakers, it was that. It was the, we're not going to produce these films anymore. We're not going to tell these stories anymore of, you know, classic 50s classic 40s type of filmmaking we're going to do something a little more realistic heavily influenced by european filmmakers french filmmakers especially it was this new wave of filmmaking and this is the american end of it this is how they caught on to it you know even filmmakers like lucas so after trying it out and feeling out the constraints of typical american studio systems a lot of them decided, some of them decided to, you know, form their own groups and say, screw it, we're going to do this our own way. And that's how Lucas and Coppola and some of these guys kind of started banding together and trying to do their own productions, trying to do their own studios, you know, that sort of thing. Didn't work out too well, that particular end of it, you know, when they did Zotrope Studios with Francis Ford Coppola. They remained friends and they collaborated many, many times afterwards, but they could not really do that massive studio structure. However, Lucas on his own said, all right, well, you know what? This is what I'm making. I'm making this kind of a movie. I'm going to need some control that normally I don't have with a typical studio. So with Star Wars, he gambled, basically. He wasn't going to be able to get his money from anywhere other than a studio. So he did make a deal with a studio, 20th Century Fox, where he would kind of uh, lower his directing fee, you know, much of his upfront fees that a typical director would get, typical filmmaker would get, he kind of give away those in exchange for the rights to certain other things that normally wouldn't be considered that important. Being able to control the story is very important to him. And being able to control the merchandising, that was the big thing. Because the merchandising is then what gave him a an indirect line to a, to a money source where he can then be able to fund a lot of things on his own, some of the sequels, for example. While that was happening, he also gambled, once again, on the notion of there are certain filmmaking elements that are not up to par and that studios are not really investing that much money on. For example, you know, in in a government situation, for example, you, you know, through funding NASA, you end up with a lot of advancements because of their research and development but studios were not at that time really going that crazy over special effects and that sort of thing because the the the, the sci-fi genre wasn't that hot back then the closest thing they had was planet of the apes and that was not a heavy heavy special effect film yes there were some special effects there was a lot of makeup effects yes true but the opticals of, of the time the special effects that were needed you know, for a film like Star Wars, just did not exist. Uh, you had a couple of blips here or there with 2001, for example. You know, they did some fantastic work. But still, it wasn't completely there yet. So the other thing that he decided to do, other than, you know, try to get the merchandising rights and all this other stuff, is to create his own special effects company to be able to handle the work that he was putting together. And that's how ILM was born. So... As I mentioned before, he might not have had a very voluminous career as a director, but behind the scenes, he was working nonstop <laughs> with so many other areas. And what's interesting is that in those periods of time where he is not directing, which are many period, you know, very long periods of time, and where even Star Wars is not happening on the screen, there is a lot of work that's being done by his company. So he is able to, uh, you know, continue to generate money for these companies that he starts up, not only in special effects, but in sound and editing, you know, all of those tools that you needed as a filmmaker, you know, under one roof. And that's, you know, when he created all these different places in California and Skywalker Ranch and the Presidio and all these other places where, you know, he would have his group of 
people working on other films, tons of other films. And even today, you know, you can't go to a, a Marvel film, for example. And at the end, you see the credits rolling and you see Lucasfilm sound, Lucasfilm this, Lucasfilm that, ILM, you know, you, you still see his stamp on a lot of stuff because those companies are still, you know, making money and, you know, breaking ground with their special effects and sound and all that other stuff. Granted, nowadays it's owned by Disney. So Lucasfilm is a sub company of Disney. You know, when he sold to Disney, an unusual time to, to sell because it was right around the time he was announcing that there was going to be a whole other trilogy coming out and a whole bunch of movies. And I'm not entirely sure how that came about. In other words, television shows, you know, all types of things were about to come out, were being announced. And then boom, he switched. He saw, he sells it off. Now, the two most likely scenarios are he's sweetening the pot before he's selling it. So in other words, he is announcing all these things. This way, Disney is even more interested in grabbing it. That's a possibility. Or he had the all the intention in the world to do it on his own and then said, no, I changed my mind. Just a snap of the fingers and boom, his mind has changed. Don't know which one it was. As I mentioned before, it's good to read these books, you know, afterwards to find out these stories and even books like the Rinslow books that I've talked and I profiled many times before, where you do get a certain amount of behind the scenes decision making and problems in the filmmaking process. It is still from a certain point of view, no pun intended. It is the Lucasfilm point of view. Obviously, those books are going to be painted on a good light towards Lucasfilm. You're never going to hear the other person's point of view of why they didn't like this or didn't like that. There are plenty of ex-Lucasfilm people, people that worked, you know, even as a freelance basis or as a, as a client basis for Lucasfilm who probably have some horror stories of <laughs> this, this happened and this didn't come out the way I wanted and I was treated unfairly and blah, 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 stuff like that. But you don't really hear much of that because it depends on who's controlling the, the narrative. There are plenty of books that are unauthorized, either Star Wars, Lucasfilm, George Lucas, you know, all, all kinds of, that you might get some insight, but it's difficult to kind of separate the disgruntledness from the reality. So, you know, it's kind of like you have to kind of take it all in and try to make up your mind on your own on how to do that. And at this point, we're at a stage in the Lucasfilm history where, you know, he's not directly involved anymore. I would love to learn at some point what happened, you know, when the selling of the company happened. How did it happen? Was it a plan all along or did he just change his mind at the last minute? You know, because to me, it seemed like he had too many ducks lined up in a row ready to go to then just kind of pull the plug on it. Unfortunately, yeah, it's tough to get all these stories out now. It seems like it's still too early, uh, even for The Force Awakens, when we want to know about the making of The Force Awakens. And primarily, the biggest problem probably is Lucas, in terms of his decision to sell the company, his original treatment for the story that we haven't learned yet. That's another one of these things where, you know, we know that he gave them part of the deal, included him giving them, here's how I would like the story to continue. And them saying, thanks, George, but no thanks. So it is very interesting how that's, you know, coming about. In the meantime, you know, we still have lots of Classic Star Wars and new Star Wars. Uh, Disney has announced that they're going to continue making more films. They just recently announced a whole bunch of new films. But I don't think the chapter on George Lucas has been fully written yet. At some point, hopefully in the near future, hopefully before the man dies, you know, we will learn what went on, you know, on his last connections to Star Wars in terms of his decision making and his creative process that we are now, you know, benefiting from <laughs> through Disney. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. 
for today's Posters of the Month segment, we are going to be looking at the teaser poster for The Last Jedi, the latest Star Wars film, and the original Escape from New York poster. Let's begin with The Last Jedi. Well, the movie is only a little less than a month away, and we've already seen a slew of posters over, I would say, the last uh, half year or so, more or less, a little more. We had the first kind of like sneak peek poster, which was the the black star background with just the name Star Wars The Last Jedi in red, which started to give us a, a hint of the design of what this film color-wise is going to be looking like. The color red is very prominent in this film. Then around the time of Star Wars Celebration, I think it was in April, not only did they premiere the trailer, the first trailer, but they also gave us the what's called the teaser poster, which is the one that I'm highlighting right now. Few lucky individuals who were able to attend that specific panel, the panel where they did show the trailer. They were also given a souvenir poster, which is a small size kind of poster of that teaser image. Now, let me describe the teaser image for you, and you'll see it also in the picture that we'll put up on our webpage. What you have is a half shot of Luke the older Luke on the left, and another half shot of Kylo Ren. Luke seems to be bigger, more prominent. Kylo Ren is a little smaller and placed slightly lower than Luke. And being separated by them is the shining light of a lightsaber that seems to be emanating from the bottom of the poster by Rey, who's holding the lightsaber. Now, if we try to read into this poster are they trying to tell us something well what's interesting is that the light of the lightsaber the shine the glow if you will is blue you know it's like a white light with the blue around it and as you start to travel upwards the blue starts to turn kind of purple and then starts to turn kind of red so there is this implication of the two forces the dark and the light you know in conflict and her being stuck in the middle of this conflict. This is something that we've seen, you know, more and more with the newer trailers that we've seen and the commercials and the international trailers because they've, they, you know, they've put out quite a, a large amount of material already because we are in the countdown phase, you know, of this film. We've also seen individual character posters, all of them again with a combination of red and white, especially the red highlighting everybody dressed in some form of red outfits. Red is a very prominent color here. And like I mentioned, the, you know, the more, the latest trailers they put out, you know, they are giving you this conflict and, you know, will she turn to the dark side type of thing? Will Luke turn to the dark? It's very, very heavy in terms of what's going to happen and what's the conflict this time around. The poster that I have came from Disney Rewards. As you might or might not know, when you purchase Disney DVDs or Blu-rays, um, whether they're Marvel, Star Wars, or just plain old Disney, you earn these points and they're included on the disc. If you open up your disc, you'll see a little piece of paper inside with the code. That code, you go to their website and you enter the number and it earns you points. Well, a lot of my Star Wars posters, the latest ones, you know, the Force Awakens posters and the Rogue One posters that I own, uh, most of them came from Disney Rewards, you know. And, you know, not, not only can you get points from buying the DVDs and the Blu-rays, you also get them from going to the movies. So if you go see a current Disney or Star Wars or Marvel film, you take a picture of your tickets with a special code number that they give you, mail it into them, and then you earn more points. So this was a great way of, you know, being able to get this poster. And I remember I was somewhat disappointed, you know, when I went to celebration because of the fact that I couldn't get, not only could I not attend the, uh, the panel, it was way too crowded to be able to see the trailer, even though the trailer premiered online, you know, five minutes after <laughs> they premiered it at celebration, everybody walked away with a free poster. It was like, oh man, I wish I could have gotten a free poster out of that. Well, this is it. So this is the exact same poster, except it's, you know, one sheet size it's huge it's, it's gigantic and it's it's a tease it's a teaser poster now i do have on order again from from disney rewards the actual one sheet and that's coming soon uh so 
unfortunately I don't have it on me. And because I have a feeling that it's going to, the movie will arrive before this poster arrives. I'd rather have something to represent, you know, this next film. I don't have any information. I was not able to look at any information on the design of the poster in terms of who did it and that sort of thing. I know it's been a little, uh, uh, unusual lately in terms of I, I think for force awakens they picked somebody an artist that is pretty much an unknown artist uh not one of the what we would consider to be the greats no you know the struzans or that that kind of a caliber of an artist because we're you know we're different we're living in a different time now and you know the, the actually art is not that popular anymore but I would like to, you know, dig around a little bit to find out if the official poster also came from this newer artist that they have, or is it somebody completely new that we haven't even heard of yet? Uh, so I will find out as soon as I can. Now, my second poster, boy, this is a, this is a doozy, is from Escape from New York. Now, you guys are familiar with my show and my interests. You know that I'm a big, big, big fan of Escape from New York. I own an original print of a modern, I forget the name of the company. It's not Mondo, but it's one of these Mondo kind of companies that they do new takes on classic genre films. And one of them is Escape from New York. And I have that print. And recently I've had that print up for quite a long time as my main poster here in my house. But ever since I started this segment of the, you know, the posters of the month, I was able to put away that print and starting to, you know, replace them with all these different, you know, classic genre posters that I've owned. Now, the Escape from New York poster that I have now is considered to be the, the movie version, American released of the poster. It is not authentic. It's a reproduction. Do not own the authentic. The movie, as a matter of fact, I had not seen it when it first came out. I only got, got around watching it once I think it came to cable, HBO, or something like that. And then I was like, oh my God, this movie's awesome. So this particular poster, the best way to describe it is, uh, you, you can kind of call it the Statue of Liberty head poster. Um, by that I mean, what you have here is kind of like a sideways piece of art where you have our heroes running towards the right side, you know, of the frame. Everything is slightly crooked to the right. So it gives you this skewed angle of all this action taking place. Now they're being chased by a whole bunch of people from the streets. Uh, they're all wielding sticks and spears and all kinds of, you know, hand weapons. Some of them are actually coming out of the manholes, which is kind of like what they did in the movie. Now, the artist is Barry E. Jackson. He doesn't seem to have that big of a background in terms of being a poster-only artist. He is an artist that has done a lot of different kinds of work, records and sketches and all types of art, you know, commission work, work for hire, you know, all types of work for film and all types of media like that. But... This particular job, from what I understand, was just another job. A lot of these people are not lifelong poster designers. They're not like a Struzan or an Alvin or an Amsel type of person that, you know, their library is enormous when it comes to films. These particular kind of artists, they go and do other stuff because the business is just not there to continue, you know, profitably in such a large scale. Now, what's interesting about this poster, as I mentioned, it's the Statue of Liberty one, where there is a gigantic Statue of Liberty head, pretty much to scale, I guess, that seems to have been removed from the actual statue, and it's crashed into, you know, New York City uh, streets, and it's there amongst the, you know, the rubble and the broken down buildings and everything. And this is something that a lot of people would ask about in terms of, well, you know, there is no scene in the movie where the Statue of Liberty's head is crashed. And they, they you know, I read an article where they asked him about it. Well, what about that? And he was like, yeah, we kind of knew that. We understood that. We didn't, we hadn't seen the movie, but it was an idea that was thrown around and, and it made its way into the poster. And then at the last minute, they decided that's the poster they wanted knowing well that there is no scene in the movie where the Statue of Liberty's head is crashed into the streets. If you guys remember the movie, the Statue of Liberty is featured in the movie as the entire statue because that's Liberty Island is where, you know, the police are running their headquarters, you know, monitoring the prison, New York City. 
So it is a very unusual uh, design in terms of why they would go with something like that. Now, if we try to theorize why they would do it, you got to remember the poster has a certain style about it. Up on top, you have 1997. New York City is a world maximum security prison. Breaking out is impossible. Breaking in is insane. And then you have John Carpenter's Escape from New York and all the credits. Again, they're also kind of sideways, kind of slanted, just like the, the poster is. The poster, I think it's supposed to give you the feel that this is kind of a B-movie, kind of a grindhouse type of movie. The specific style of the art that Snake Plissken and Maggie and the president are drawn, they are very action-y, you know, not super realistic, but overly sexualized, and Maggie is kind of sexualized like her character you know no kidding and uh snake is very muscular and and action oriented and the president is kind of like hanging by a thread and he's got the the briefcase still attached to his <laughs> wrist so i get the feeling that this was done on purpose they wanted a poster like this because this movie was not exactly supposed to be a blockbuster they kind of wanted it to be a whoa this is an interesting poster let's go see this movie you know that kind of a a reaction even though they're not giving you this particular scene now the thing about this poster was that this particular artist had done other examples of potential posters that they could use he said that at one point he had created the title escape from new york all from building you know from from a top view of new york city buildings to spell out the word that was another sketch possible poster that he was working on but what's interesting is that apparently up until the last minute they were under the impression, not only this particular artist, but a lot of the people involved in the final design, they were under the impression that the poster that was going to be used was a different one created by Stan Watts. And I don't know if you've seen this one. It was used uh, more as a teaser poster. And then I think it was also used for a lot of the international releases of Escape from New York. And this is a night shot of the skyline. And you see the Statue of Liberty, you don't see the face, but you kind of see the arm sticking up in the air with the torch, and around the wrist, there's a pair of handcuffs, and it says, Escape from New York, you have art-drawn renditions of the main characters, or the main actors, uh, which kind of looks a little funky to me, I mean, they don't look very realistic, they look very different, let's put it this way, and this poster is, you know, it's a straight horizontal poster, you know, with the information, not this crooked one, and from what I've been reading is that up until the last minute, they were convinced that that was going to be the poster that they were going to use. But for whatever reason, the studios decided, no, let's go with this one. This is the one that I'm more familiar with because, yes, when the movie came out in whatever shape or form you saw any kind of posters in the city for it or in any merchandising which was there not a lot of merchandising when you think about it but like the laser disc for example when it finally came out or the videotapes and that sort of thing this was the poster that it's easily identifiable and it's funny because the statue of liberty head is a very prominent thing that never really happens but it has been noted that recently, or more in a contemporary, because this movie is from 1981. This is a very old movie. There was a scene in Cloverfield a number of years ago where they actually did get something like this shot. The image of this poster was finally put into effect. I don't know if you want to call it an homage or whatever, but you do have in Cloverfield, the creature rips off the head of the uh, Statue of Liberty at some point off camera, and you see the head landing in the street, which was, I think, part of the teaser for Cloverfield. So in a way, you got uh, to, to see what this would kind of look like, except you had to wait, I don't know, about 20, 30 years later or something. Another thing that's notable in the credits of the poster, you know, when you have everybody's name, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and this guy and that guy, great, great, great. And 
one of the things that I miss these days that you don't normally see, and that is a lot of it has to do because a lot of these older films were not very merchandisable. So there were very little things you could get as far as buying extra something. A lot of times you could get a soundtrack, but in this particular case, even the poster, and I noticed that some of the older posters have this. It says, read the Bantam book. And that's because, yes, a lot of times posters used to advertise their book form you know and getting this book i remember i finally got it maybe about two years ago and it took forever to find it this is a movie tie-in basically and it is a hard to get paperback i believe some of them might be from england some of them are local but it's one of these things that is so out of print and so rare that when you can finally get your hands on one it's like hold on to them because you know you could pay you know, up to maybe 50 bucks or more sometimes trying to get your hands on these, uh, these paperbacks. You know, I, I lucked out and I think I might have paid maybe 12 or $13 for it, which is a lot of money for a paperback. But if you think about it these days, if you buy a regular paperback, they're at least 10 bucks sometimes because of nowadays the prices are insane. Um, but it is cool and I'm going to read it soon to see if there's any differences and the making of you got to remember that these kind of movies there wasn't a very organized behind the scenes effort when it came to documenting how this film was made yes you do find some making of documentaries that were done later and they do use some footage but nowadays especially with some of these big films they do a lot of serious serious marketing work when it comes to the art of that particular film or the special effects of that specific film. And a lot of that stuff we end up seeing here. Like, for example, the history of posters. A lot of, our, you know, the more modern films, Star Wars or even Marvel, I imagine, you know, you could get a better understanding of them afterwards by buying those books and going through them. This is 1981. It's John Carpenter. So, yes, he does have Halloween as far as, uh, you know, his claim to fame. However, there wasn't much of a documented, you know, in book form at least, making of materials. This is something that was more prominent later on. So, again, something like a movie tie-in is something that, you know, they're trying to remind you of, hey, by the way, you know, we have this available. My only other merchandising-related thing that I remember from Escape from New York, and I'm going to have to look it up to see if it exists still somewhere. I bet you it does. I remember going to, I talked about this recently, a toy store near where I used to live in Jackson Heights called Toy City. And in the back of the store uh, where the models were uh, for sale, uh, that's also the area where they had all the D&D &D and role-playing type of games. I remember for the longest time, and this is probably even before I saw the movie, they had what appeared to be an Escape from New York role-playing game, an RPG game. I never bought it, but I remember always looking at it, and, and, and just the picture was kind of fascinating, and I'm like, and, and you know, when I finally got to see the movie, I'm like, oh wow, this is like a great idea to create a a D and D style game having to do with Escape from New York, and you're the actual character, you know, running through the streets, you know, trying to fulfill some kind of mission. But that's the only real merchandisable thing I remember from that time. Since then, you know, later on, yes, you were able to find certain things, obviously the poster, DVDs, Laserdiscs, all that stuff started coming out later. Some of the figures, the McFarlane type of figures and even other companies that did versions of Snake Plissken, tons of versions of Snake Plissken. A lot of them also based on Escape from LA. I think it was easier to get the rights to Escape from LA than Escape from New York. I know they've done comic books uh, recently also, but back then it was very tough to find anything, you know, authentic enough. I know there were patches. I, th I think I own a couple of patches from Escape from New York, but I'm, I don't know how old they really are. So yeah, merchandising is a tough thing for a movie like this. The soundtrack, yes. The soundtrack, you were able to find it a very long time ago. I could even remember, I think even Starlog Magazine might have had ads, you know, for the soundtrack of this movie. And the posters, if you're lucky enough to own an original, even better because um, these are uh, these are instant classics. Again, 
This is a great poster. It's a great reminder of this film that I absolutely love. And I know they keep threatening to remake it. Every, I don't know how many years, everything kind of sparks up again. Hey, we're going to remake uh, Escape from New York. Okay, that's great, wonderful. But again, my favorite thing about this poster, it's the genre, like I said earlier, grindhouse kind of look. It looks dirty and dark and full of action and that's exactly what we got from this picture and it's great you know they i think this guy did a great job you know depicting what would become a classic at least in my eyes we interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin direct via satellite from our on the spot task force i'm as mad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Thank you, Bob. It's Mort. Mort, yes. I am Ted Baxter, and here is the news. All right, we finally had a chance to visit Star Tours this past weekend, and we were able to see the new changes to the ride, especially having to do with The Last Jedi. As I mentioned in a previous episode, part of the refurbishment or the upgrade that they're doing now in order to promote The Last Jedi is you no longer have, you know, seven movies to kind of cycle through, you know, and randomly as to what you see when you get on the ride. What they're doing now is you're all going to the same place. You're going to Jakku and then you're going to Crate, which is the location from Last Jedi that they're selected to use for the ride. And the rumor is that down the line, once the movie is out of the theaters or past its runtime, let's say, they will then bring back the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, and you'll have the option of either one side of the line will head towards the original and the prequel, and the other side of the line will head to the new trilogy side. So that's in the future. But now we're in new movie, (laughs) new trilogy mode. So we had a chance to write it. Everything about the beginning, you know, the queue, the beginning of the, you know, when when you're going through the line, when you're waiting to the doors to open, when you first, you know, enter, everything is pretty much the same. They really didn't refurbish any, you know, uh, sets or props or anything like that. What happens here is that I noticed that was a little different. Uh, Now, I don't know if maybe I just never seen it before, but I think it's part of the new uh, mix that we're dealing with. In the beginning, when we first are departing, when the ship is first taken off, when normally you would have like Darth Vader come in or a security droid comes in or whatever, and you're trying to escape that hangar, this time around, we got Kylo Ren kind of doing a similar Darth Vader-y kind of like, no, you're not, you know, you're not leaving this place and he's trying to use the force to keep you in place. That to me seemed kind of new. But again, I'm not entirely sure. It's just, I just don't remember. It's just that usually I always get... <laughs> I always get the Falcon is in the background and either Vader or, like I said, the security droid, something like that. But I never, I don't remember seeing uh, Kylo Ren there, so that might be a new one. So the first location you go to, like I said before, is Jakku. And you go through the whole Jakku rigmarole. But now, when you're done with Jakku, you get the message from the Rebellion. And that, I'm, I mean, I remember it was mostly BB-8 we would see or... Uh, I think even Abra Akbar sometimes, but now we got to see Poe Dameron giving this little speech about you got to get the the rebel spy you know safely to the blah 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 location and this and that, which I don't remember ever seeing him before. So I'm assuming that he's probably part of the new mix. I think there's also a Maz Katana, which I've seen on YouTube. Somebody recorded it again. I don't ever remember seeing Maz Katana, so that might be a new one too. And you still, from what I understand, still have a combination that includes a, a BB-8 or a Yoda or a Princess Leia or an Admiral Akbar. Not entirely sure if any of those are also new or not. Uh, the most common one I remember was BB-8, I'm pretty sure. And even maybe Admiral Akbar. I remember, the, I think I remember those two. So after Poe Dameron gives his little message, it's a funny little message and he has a little, a little punchline at the end of it, which is kind of cute. We head out to the next location and this is Crate. This is the new Star Wars The Last Jedi location. And the way that it works is that as soon as we arrive to the planet, which we don't get a very clear picture of the... Like, the approach is not very clear. I think it's kind of like a bright 
planet, uh, light color planet, but we jump right to the surface of the planet and we're kind of traveling down like this canyony kind of surface where there are these, uh, there is some vegetation and there is a very whitish kind of uh, covering over most of the surface, over a lot of the surface. And there's a whole bunch of, we later found out, you know, if, if you look around at all the promotional material, these things called crystalline foxes, I think, or crystal foxes. And they're kind of like foxes, but they're white. And it's almost like it's not hair, it's more like crystals, hence the name. And there seems to be a whole pack of them. And as soon as they see the speeder coming in, they all kind of scatter as you're heading closer and closer to the actual canyon walls. And as soon as you kind of go over this hill, all of a sudden you get a couple of TIE fighters coming at you shooting and the ship that you're in kind of banks into a hole, let's say, in a, into a cave and you're now inside the planet. And the inside the planet part is a little similar, I guess, in style to what the original Star Tours used to be at one point, which was you were flying around inside an asteroid that was made out of like crystalline ice. Well, here in this film, and we've seen it in the trailer, there are are scenes of the Falcon flying through this red crystal cave while you're being pursued by TIE fighters, you know, New Order TIE fighters, and you're dodging all these things and, you sh and they're being shot at and you're shooting at them. And as they're shooting at you, some of those crystals are exploding and all of a sudden enough of the crystals get uh, destroyed that it creates a hole in the cave, in the cavern, and you now fly out of the cavern back into the surface of the planet. Now, one of the descriptions they use for the surface of the planet that I read is salt flats, kind of like salt flats. I thought it was snow, so I'm not entirely sure what we're dealing with. I know that there's a scene later in the movie, because it's on the trailer, where you have snowtroopers, first order snowtroopers, entering a location in this area. So I'm still not convinced exactly what it is we're dealing with here, but maybe it is a salt a crystalline white salt covering the entire surface of this area of the planet. It does explain now a little clearer what is the deal with the resistance ships, fighters that are attacking or defending themselves from the incoming ADATs and how they're kind of skimming the surface and barely touching it enough to drive up this red dust that seems to be underneath the white layer. Again, this goes back to the whole look of the film and don't get me started about colors and reds and whites and this and that because that's very iconic for this film. But I've always been trying to, ever since I saw the first trailer, I'm always trying to figure out what is the deal here with the red and the white and how, what is exactly that's happening? Are they deploying this like red smoke to give themselves a some kind of a smoke screen against the the ADATs or are they skimming the surface and bringing up dust or something? I think it's more, to me, it looks a lot more like that now that I've been on the ride. And again, if you watch the trailer a little more carefully, yeah, it seems to be that underneath that white layer of salt, crystal or snow, whatever it is, is all this red dust that I would imagine it's more to keep them a little bit of a smoke screen. So the ship flies out and all of a sudden you're in between rebel fighters heading towards the Adats. The Adats are coming towards you. And what's interesting is that the closer you get to the Adat formation, and again, these are not just regular Adats. These are these gorilla Adats. I forget the technical name for them. There's also this huge, huge ship in the middle that seems to be leading the attack. And it almost looks like a like a giant oven, if you will. <laughs> it's like a, a cylindrical centipede looking thing with like some kind of reactor in the middle, a red fiery reactor. I'm not sure what that does yet. I don't know if it's some kind of massive gun or what the heck it is. I don't know. But as you're getting closer and closer, and I was like, oh, cool, I can take a look at this. What is this thing? You're getting sprayed. The windshield of the ship you're on, the, the, the starfighter, you know, the, the star tour starfighter, is getting covered with the red dust all over the windshield. And you get to a point where you can't see anymore. So... As you can barely see what's happening, these uh, like windshield wipers from the top come and start to clean the uh, windshield, which is kind of neat. And the ship starts to bank and kind of go under the legs of some of these gigantic new adats. As you, you know, you're being shot at, you're shooting at you, everybody's shooting at everybody, and you're trying to clear in the windshield at the same time. So as we start to clear, 
you know, the bottom of these AT-ATs and we're starting to fly up into the air. It looks like we're leaving. The ship all of a sudden starts to turn and we now attack the AT-ATs and, you know, our guns are deployed and we start shooting at one of these massive AT-ATs and it looks as if we're blowing at least one of them up to bits. Don't know if this is for real in terms of whether it's canon that these type of ships could destroy it. I doubt it. I have a feeling that they're going to get slaughtered by these things because, first of all, they're huge compared to a regular AT-AT. They're probably four times as big as a regular AT-AT. So, again, for the ride purposes, it kind of makes sense, I guess. But as this is happening, you know, we kind of shoot at them. We got to shoot at this particular one. It explodes. We go back up in the air and we now are actually getting away from the thing. Poe Dameron comes up and gives us a little message, you know, that, you know, we're going to take it from here. Thanks for your help, you know, that kind of thing. And we kind of escape back to hyperspace. And what's neat is that as we return, we are no longer returning to uh, some space base or even one of the old planets that we might have returned to, like Coruscant or anything like that. We return to Galaxy's Edge, which is the Disney attraction that they're building right now which is the star wars land really and you get a obviously a three-dimensional you get a view of an entire huge now granted i'm not sure it's gonna be this big this is more cinematic for the ride's purpose but you do get to see some of those new or soon to be new classic locations in what the park will be looking like in probably another year and as you land the ship, you start to see some of the inhabitants of the area. You see a couple of BB-8 units and all types of different robots and people kind of like starting to gather around and that sort of thing. The name of the planet apparently of that they gave this particular location is Batu, which I don't know if it's ever going to show up in the movies or not. Wouldn't surprise me as part of the tie-in, if you will. But that's where the ride kind of takes us to the end. And that's when the, the door starts to slide close. And, you know, thank you for writing. Have a good trip. Bye-bye. You know, that whole thing. So that's pretty much where we're at with the ride. It's great. It's a great little preview. It's typical, you know, Star Wars-y type of stuff in terms of, I just wanted more. If it could only last a half hour, you know, <laughs> something like that. It's very fast. It's only... It's probably less than two minutes, I would imagine, how the whole thing rides in terms... I'm talking about just the new material. So that's the way it works. Again, my only concern is once they do go to this full, you know, old trilogy, new trilogy mode, that if you go to the new trilogy, you're only going to have this to pick from. There is no randomness because when you have two things, that's the two things you're going to get. I really wish they would do something more, especially they have Rogue One. They could do a little bit something out of Rogue One or maybe even give, give us some other locations within the existing new films. There is some stuff they could kind of pull out of somewhere, I'm pretty sure. But for now, I guess, I don't know, maybe that will give, give the ride a little more life. I don't know if it's going to attract more people necessarily. Obviously, for the new movie, yeah, the Star Wars fans all want to get in there. We had to order the Fast Passes ahead of time. As usual, you know, the lines were pretty crazy because we are around the holidays. You know, if you look at Thanksgiving or Christmas, that's the crazy time for Star Wars. Unfortunately, for a park like Hollywood Studios, because there's so many closed rides because of the refurbishments and the expansions, you don't have much of a selection in terms of lining up to go see something because there is not a lot to pick from. So the lines are longer than usual on top of it being, you know, the peak season. So overall, I love this new addition that they made to it. I can't wait to see the movie, obviously, and I'm sure, hopefully the movie will give us more than two minutes worth <laughs> of this particular uh, portion. And if you're a Star Wars fan, this is a must-see for you. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We went a little back into the history of George Lucas and his career as a filmmaker, as a producer, as a director, as a special effects company creator, pioneer, etc., <laughs> etc. Et we looked at our posters of the month with The Last Jedi, with our teaser poster, and then we looked at Escape from New York. Great, great film that I cannot help revisiting every now and then. And we finished everything up with Star Tours. I gave you guys the uh, view of uh, what it was like to finally ride this new modified version of the ride with The Last Jedi, Planet of Crate, and Galaxy's Edge, Batuu. 
giving us a, a very quick peek also at what the new Star Wars land is kind of going to look like. They actually built it into the ride now, which is amazing. So on behalf of everybody here, I thank you for listening to us, and we will see you next time here at GeekFest Trans. Bye-bye, everybody. Across the sea of stars lies another world, a world almost exactly like ours. This is where he lives. He's 27 years old, single but searching. Favorite sports, windsurfing and Aikido. Favorite pastimes, cigars and sex. He has everything except fulfillment. And then one night, it happens. Hey, good buddy, are you home? He has a very sudden midlife crisis. He lands in Cleveland. You do know why you were sent to me? Listen to me, small visitor. I can explain how you got here. Maybe you're here for some greater purpose, some cosmic cause. Here, he's forced to reassess his career goals. You went to med school? To explore new relationships. <laughs> to redefine his self-image. I'm sorry, we don't allow pets on the premises. To adjust to a changing lifestyle. I pull it out! Until he discovers just who he really is. Oh, no. A duck in big trouble. That's a duck, man! Howard the Duck, trapped in a world he never made. Coming from George Lucas, a Willard Hike film, a Gloria Katz production. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>